Welcome to the Park City Podcast, a podcast created by Park City Church to discuss who God is and how he is at work in our lives. I'm your host, David Morelli. Welcome back to the Park City Podcast. I'm David Morelli, and as always, I'm joined by my friend Phil Schomber. Phil, recently two TikTok chefs cooked up the world's largest chicken nugget, which weighed in at over 46 pounds. How many pounds do you think you could eat? Well, uh, since I'm vegan, I, I'd have to answer right now, zero. But it, you know, as I, as I think about my pre-vegan days and try to figure out how much I could have eaten, um, I suppose some of it depends on how many uh, fries I would be eating along with those chicken nuggets, um, thinking more probably specifically of chicken McNuggets. Uh, from McDonald's, but uh, gee, I, I don't think I'd want to eat over a pound. <laughs> yeah, I definitely wouldn't, uh, you know, do well in you know various uh, food eating competitions. I'm a, a food athlete. I am not, but uh, I could, if pressed, maybe I could get two pounds down. You know, I'm not really sure. What do? You, what about you? I yeah, I I think a pound. Uh, it's tough though. I was looking at a picture of this thing and it's just, there's so much breading on it. Right. I mean, obviously this nugget was, I mean, they had to literally like create a contraption that they could then bake this thing in because it doesn't fit in a normal oven. Uh, so just like the amount of breading on it, you know, that would be, that would be the tricky thing too, is obviously that would fill you up really quickly, but yeah, not a not a competitive eater by any means. Um, I think I have a pretty good appetite, but uh, yeah, also not trying to. I mean, I generally like chicken nuggets. I like uh, you know all the different sauces, and they're kind of a vehicle for sauce for me, which is which is great. Yeah. Um, but not trying to you know ruin them for the rest of my life. So I think I'd uh, just see how far I could get, it, you know, kind of respectively, and then call it quits. Yeah, it's safe to say I don't think either of us are approaching the 46-pound uh, uh, threshold there. No, it said the, the article that was describing it said that they split it among family and friends. I don't know how many people, but uh, or if they actually finished the whole thing. But, I mean, talk about, you know, there you go. You could bring just one of those, one nugget to a, to a potluck, and, you know, you could feed, yeah. feed the 5,000 uh, just about. So, well... With that, we'll get into our discussion uh, for today. And again, if you've been tracking with us, we've been talking about the Lord's providence throughout redemptive history. So we've been going through the Old Testament uh, and kind of piecing together a storyline of the Lord's providence and looking at s- specific events and noticing um, how the Lord is working kind of behind the scenes or uh, in, in the light to accomplish his purpose and plans. And so last week we looked at the life of David and the covenant that the Lord makes with him. And this week, then we are moving a bit forward into uh, Israel's history as we are examining the division of the kingdom of Israel, followed by its subsequent exile into Babylon. So Phil, the height of the kingdom of Israel really does not last long, just about one generation, a little more. So what causes the division then of the kingdom? Yeah, so David's son Solomon becomes king after David, and things actually start off pretty well. God blesses Solomon with incredible wisdom. Solomon Solomon builds the temple. Um, 
but later in Solomon's life, uh, things really start to go downhill quickly. He takes uh, many wives from the nations around Israel, including Pharaoh's daughter. And that's a problem uh, primarily because they entice him to worship their gods. And because Solomon uh, ends up turning away from the Lord um, and turning to these other gods, you know, to worship them from like the nations around him, the Lord tells Solomon that he is going to tear the kingdom from him. And that's exactly what happens after Solomon's death. His son Rehoboam uh, succeeds him, but the majority of the tribes of Israel rebel against him when he subjects them to even harsher labor than they had experienced under the various building projects um, that Solomon instituted. So from that point, Israel becomes a divided kingdom. They're divided into two, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Yeah, so the northern kingdom then is uh, first led by a guy named Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom then is led by Rehoboam, Solomon's son, so so David's line. So again, that remains uh, prevalent with, again, if you remember last week, the covenant that the Lord made with David promising an eternal king and an eternal everlasting kingdom that would come through his family line. So that's just uh, a piece of the story that remains important. So that kind of sets the stage then for these two kingdoms then that exist, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern. Um, And each have different paths into exile, but both end up there. Um, And so the northern kingdom then after the divide really things continue downhill very quickly. So again, the first king is is Jeroboam, as I mentioned. And one of the first things that he does is make golden calves to worship and make sacrifices to. Now, that might sound familiar. Uh, That's what the Israelites did in the wilderness shortly after the exodus out of Egypt. Um, And so again, we see idolatry taking center stage. And really this act by Jeroboam sets the tone for much of the 200 years that will follow. The northern kingdom is run by terrible king after terrible king, and they all contribute to the spiritual degrading of the people of Israel. So they continue worshiping other gods and idols and are unfaithful to the Lord. Now, it's precisely because of God's faithfulness and his preservation of Israel that they make it this far, right? Again, as we've touched on before, God's providence is undeserved. He's not looking at Israel and saying, Israel, nice job. Because of that, I will preserve you. Because of that, I will bring blessing upon you. God is doing this out of his faithfulness to his name, out of a desire to bring glory to himself. And that is either through the uplifting of Israel or through their punishment. Uh, And so finally, in 722 BC, under uh, the reign of King Hosea, the northern kingdom then falls to Assyria, one of the world powers of the day. And this was actually previously prophesied by God uh, in the book of First Kings before this uh, downfall happens that he describes how Israel's disobedience would be punished um, and that the Lord would allow other rulers, other powers, other kingdoms uh, to come in and rule over them. Um, and so then this is kind of the end, so to speak, of the northern kingdom of Israel, with many Israelites then being exiled into a foreign land. So that's kind of the story of the northern kingdom then. So, Phil, what happens to the southern kingdom, and 
where does that then leave the promise of God in his prior covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David? So the southern kingdom of Judah does a little bit better, better than the northern kingdom, but, but not much. They have some good kings. Uh, so, for example, when the book of the law was found by one of the priests, King Josiah responds by instituting a number of reforms to turn the people back to God. But the very fact that the book of the law had to be found is an indication that the overall spiritual health of the southern kingdom was not all that great. Um, you know, if the law is sort of the foundation of Israel and sort of outlines what God expects of them, and so the fact that they forgot about it, you know, isn't isn't a particularly good thing. Um, so as a result, we read, not surprisingly, that most of the kings did evil in the Lord's eyes. And that ultimately leads to the Lord raising up Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who ultimately destroys Jerusalem and the temple and sends the majority of the people into exile in Babylon. So at this point, things are just in disarray in Israel's history. And in, given that, they would have asked, and, and we asked, so what happened to the covenants that God made with Israel? Where, where, where are we left in respect to them? Well, with respect to the Mosaic Covenant, God had specifically said that exile would be a consequence of the people's refusal to be faithful to the covenant. So really what we're seeing is the outworking of that covenant and the result of the people's repeated turning away from God. But what about the covenants with Abraham and David, that, that's a different story. Those seem to have been unconditional. God just flat out said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And to David, he said, you know, you're going to have an everlasting kingdom. There didn't seem to be any sort of conditions put on that. So what happened? Did, did God failed uh, to live up to his promises? No. And in fact, um, that's why we sort of look forward. We know that God is faithful to his promises. And that's where we need to remember that the exile is not the end of the story. God knows fully the promises he made. And because of his faithfulness, he eventually causes King Cyrus to allow the people to return to the land. So the people are back in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem, after the exile. But even here, there's a sense in which something is still missing. The, the promises haven't been completely fulfilled. And so that tension is there through the rest of uh, Israel's history. And that's, in fact, why we read in the prophets of God's intention to establish a new covenant. It's in the new covenant that we see the fulfillment of all of God's other promises. So the other covenants sort of find their fulfillment in the new covenant, and, and Israel's prophets are pointing forward to that. And as Christians, we know that the new covenant was inaugurated in Christ's first coming. He is the Davidic king that we have been looking for, and he's the one who will ultimately bless all the nations and usher in God's eternal kingdom. Yeah, so once again, we see some of those common themes that we've touched on about the Lord's providence, that again, it is pervasive over all 
human action. And that includes uh, the quote-unquote evil of these other nations conquering Israel, some of the, the evil that Israel suffers as a result of that. Again, the Lord's using that to discipline his people as he promised them it would happen if they were disobedient. And again, we're seeing the fulfillment of that promise. So even even the exile is actually God being faithful. Um, and, you know, again, it, all of God's providence is undeserved. You know, it, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is really highlighted because we learn more about him in the story in, in the book of Daniel. Uh, and, but even in that, you know, the Lord talks about how you know, he holds holds kings in the palm of his hand and, and, you know, he's the one behind the scenes directing, you know, what he allows to happen. Uh, and that, again, ultimately the Lord is decisive above and beyond any human. Um, and so even though it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is quote-unquote winning, uh, the reality is the Lord is not for a second, not in control. And even in that, Again, in the return of the exile, which again, we're, we're glossing over hundreds of years of history very quickly in just a couple of minutes. Uh, and so again, you can read about uh, this period in Israel's history. There's massive books of the Old Testament that, that cover it. The prophets of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah um, dive really deep into this. And that is well w- worth your time, especially as we consider what was the Lord doing? What, how was he communicating to his people at that time? What, how was he revealing his plans, his promises, etc.? cetera? Uh, and so that's, that's well worth your time. But again, we're getting this theme that all of this is undeserved. Um, and the purpose of the Lord's discipline is to bring about repentance, right? It's not a spiteful thing. Um, and I think that's something we, as people, have a hard time grasping about God because our discipline as people towards another is often spiteful, right? If someone says something disrespectful to you, you give them the silent treatment. You don't want to be around them. Uh, and, you know, we we act with spite. We try to get revenge. We, you know, do all of these things. But that's not so with God. Again, God's heart is for his people. So though he disciplines him, the purpose of that, the purpose of the exile is for them to come to repentance, for them to see the ways in which they were led astray and to repent from that. Um, and so again, what, by reading through scripture, you, you can, you can help to kind of put those pieces together, but we see some of those themes. And, and again, that's going to continue on in our story, you know, next week, as we talk about awaiting, uh, the coming, the first coming of Christ. Um, but again, those, those themes continue to emerge again and again. Right. In, in when we we think about God's discipline in the um, exile, um, it, in one sense, it would we could hardly blame him if he had just said, "I'm washing my hands of all of this. I'm done with Israel. I'm done with humanity. Um, they keep turning their back on me, and so I'm just gonna." just cease my dealings with them. But he doesn't. He preserves them through the exile, which is an important um, thing to note. Um, Israel uh, isn't utterly destroyed. And so we see God's hand. You were, you were talking about, um, you know, 
God using these other uh, kings to discipline his people, but they do so within his constraints. Uh, they are not able to completely destroy and wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And that's, that's because God is ultimately preserving them, and he preserves their identity through the exile, um, and ultimately because he knows he's bringing them back to the land. And he does that out of love for them, but also in faithfulness to the, to the promises he's made. And, and again, um, you know, that, that's where the covenants work together. The, with the Mosaic covenant, you might have said, well, that could have been the end of the story. They've disciplined, and so they're, they're getting uh, what they, they deserve under the terms of the covenant, and they're just, they've broken the covenant, and the covenant is at an end. But that's where we have to bring in the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and together they say that God isn't done with them, and he's not done with us. We, and then, again, on, as we've said a number of times, on this side of the cross, we know that ultimately those threads come to work, come together in, in Christ's ministry and ultimately um, the new covenant that, that he ushers in. But yeah, but God's heart is, is seen through all of this, that he continues to not only discipline us, but out of compassion, um, to, to draw us back to him. Yeah. And that's a helpful thing for us to, to touch on as well is that, uh, sometimes I think when we talk about God's providence, it can seem as though, and I think we get this picture of God that, right. He's this cosmic being in the sky with no feeling, just, you know, making things happen as he sees fits, as he sees fit in his infinite wisdom. And I, I think we, again, we easily forget, how deeply relational God is. And that's, you know, a topic that we've touched on multiple times in our conversation, but really God's heart is, is such an important thing to reflect upon. And we, we notice it actually, uh, during this is, I mean, this is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. Uh, this isn't just, you know, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Will we get to the promised land? This was, we were there, we messed up. And are we going to get back? I, I don't know, you know, and it, I'm sure, seemed as though God had abandoned them, right? He's allowing them to be persecuted, to be removed from the promised land, uh, to be uprooted uh, culturally, right? To, to lose kind of their sense of uh, their national heritage. Um, but something the prophet Jeremiah records during this period, I think, actually makes us pause and, and turns our eyes back to the heart of God. Um, the book of Lamentations is written during this time by Jeremiah, and it's a book of just that, laments. Uh, it's a, a book filled with grief and sorrow over the current state of the people of Israel. Jeremiah is writing this as the, the Babylonian exile is taking place. Um, there are five chapters in the book, and again, we can get into kind of how it's, it's, uh, all put together, which is worth, uh, worth your time. It's a, a poetic book and there's a certain number of stanzas in each chapter. Um, and so to the point where exactly in the middle of the book, then Lamentations three verses 31 to 33, we get this glimmer of hope. Now, again, this context is Israel seems 
lost. That there's no way out. There's no possible way God could redeem this, restore this. Why would he? You know, as we're discussing, Israel has been unfaithful, yet the prophet Jeremiah records this in uh, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So what does this passage mean? Out of his deepest heart flows compassion and mercy for his people, right? He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That phrase itself reminds us of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses. That He says he has uh, steadfast love, abounding in steadfast love for thousands of generations. This doesn't negate his judgment or his rightful discipline of Israel, right? They're not in conflict with one another, but at his deepest heart level, what he feels most is compassion for his people. There was an article written a few hundred years ago by a guy named B.B. Uh, Warfield, and it's called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And I actually referenced it when we did that preaching series on the heart of Christ. Uh, and what B.B. Warfield does is he goes through the gospel accounts and he lists every instance where Christ is, is noted as experiencing an emotion, right? Hungry, tired, angry, sad, what have you. And he notes that the emotion that Christ experience, experiences most frequently is compassion, right? And Lamentations 3 is, is backing that up. Again, the very heart of God for his people, what's, what's there at the core of his being is compassion. Uh, and a part of you know what I was touching on earlier with, with discipline is his discipline, his judgment flows out of that compassion. And what I mean by that is because he loves his people so much, he disciplines them in their sin, right? We, we've seen plenty of instances throughout this discussion of the Lord being far more gracious than he needs to be, than, than Israel deserves uh, with their disobedience. But again, the Lord is doing all of this that they would be led to repentance. The prophet Ezekiel, who lived at a similar time as Jeremiah, uh, writes in his book the phrase that they may know that he is the Lord. He writes that over 60 times in the book. There's 48 chapters or something like that. So it's this phrase that constantly comes up, right? The Lord is doing these things that they may know that he is the Lord. He's, he's disciplining them. He's pardoning them. He's being gracious that they may know that he is the Lord. That is the aim that God is after. And we've seen again and again throughout this series that the Lord's going to do that through the uplifting of Israel, through their preservation, through protecting them uh, from, say, Egypt, rescuing them you know, through the Exodus. Uh, but it also might be through their discipline, right? That not just Israel may know that he is the Lord, but the other nations may know that he is the Lord. And so, again, we see the Lord's heart set forth throbbing that even in this exile period, even in this dark, dark season, right? What is true of the Lord? He will not cast off forever. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not afflict from his heart. And I think that's really important for us to reflect upon. 
Exactly. And, you know, we've talked about it at, at different points, sort of through the survey of God's providence in the history of Israel, that ultimately God's plan is to, to work history such that we get back to a place where he dwells in our midst in perfect harmony with us. And, you know, we saw that when we go all the way back to the fall, the promise that he makes in Genesis 3, that there would be a seed who will crush the serpent. And then as we see that promise of essentially redemption there, as it gets worked out in the other covenants in Israel's history, it's a reminder that that's what God is doing. He wants to be in relationship with us, not just sort of temporarily, or sort of on the surface, surface he wants this um, sort of return to that place where we have rest because we are his people and he is our God. And we get a glimpse of that through the Old Testament prophets um, where they, they look into the future and give us a little glimpse of what that is like um, to sustain Israel in their time of discipline, but also to speak to us, to, to point forward to that time where, you know, uh, we're going to, in essence, return to maybe even an amplified version of uh, the garden. And we get, a, a, you know, move, skipping ahead to the New Testament, we see that, for example, at the end of the book of uh, Revelations, where, um, you know, we get that glimpse of us dwelling, you know, in in God's presence when there's no there's no more sorrow, no more death. Um, God is working us back to that place, and that place is, as you've pointed out, very relational. It's it's, it's not just this. Uh, God's working through history is not just this sort of sterile thing where He just makes events happen. He's working in it for a specific purpose, and that purpose is full of compassion, as you've said because he does desire a relationship with us. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, this side of the cross too, that even helps us understand what was going on there. We've, we've discussed kind of tangibly what Christ was accomplishing and what he has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. But again, that that is the Lord's heart on display, right? That he would be obedient, even obedience to death on a cross, as it says in Philippians 2. And then that is, again, when when Warfield talks about Christ's heart being set forth, throbbing in compassion and mercy on us when we experience trouble, trial, persecution, sin, suffering, what have you. I mean, the pinnacle of that is the cross, right? And, you, you, know, uh, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing to say that demonstrates again what just emotionally is going on in christ's heart at that moment um to to look at the people persecuting you to look at the ones who put you on the cross um and to say father forgive them they don't know what they're doing um again that just communicates the lord's heart for us and and again that's helpful of again god's providence is not removed from that it's not removed from his compassion and mercy and steadfast love it is a vehicle out of 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 those things that that 
those things serve as the foundation for his providence. Um, and so, of course, we could spend much, much, much more time uh, talking about that, but I don't want to uh, take up too much time since we have a very important uh, conversation coming up here on the devotional. And so we'll move over there. And as you might remember, we opened our discussion uh, last week on the topic of salvation by just talking about why we need salvation and how we are saved by grace through faith. And this week, we are going to continue that discussion by talking about the topic of election. So just a note before we begin, this is a difficult topic. Um, it's one that, that Christians come down on, on either side uh, and they disagree on. Um, it can be, I think, an incredibly confusing and painful um, topic as well as we consider what the, how the Lord is at work when it comes to salvation and, and who is saved and who isn't and why are some saved and why aren't others and, and what does that mean about the Lord and, and what is our responsibility, if any, and, and all of those questions. So we just want to acknowledge that uh, this is a difficult subject to talk about. Um, as we've said before, we do not claim to have all the answers. Um, you're not going to necessarily come away with a spiritual awakening after listening to our conversation. Um, we do not, again, pretend to be experts in this. What we are hoping to do in this discussion is, is just highlight what the Bible has to say um, and then ask ourselves, again, who is the Lord that um, are we are we willing to make room in our in our minds and in our hearts for the possibility of this? Um, and again, we we are not going to understand uh, how it all works, uh, and that's because God is God, and, and we are not. Um, but when we come to Scripture and we encounter this, are we doing some of the things that we've discussed before? Are we are we willing to be humble and accept the fact that we do not know everything? Um, and are we willing to trust the Lord in that? And again, that, that's something that is so, so, so much easier, uh, said than done. So I hope this conversation does not come across as cold or callous, uh, in any sort of way. Um, we are simply trying to discuss this doctrine of election, um, as the Bible speaks to it. So, um, Phil, why don't you open us by just explaining what makes this a uh, highly debated topic and, and a difficult one to understand? Yeah. So as you said, this is de definitely one of the topics that sort of confirms for me just how uh, little I understand. And, and it, it's challenging to, to kind of pull, you know, all the threads of the biblical, biblical teaching together. But so election is contentious in, in part because so we have some verses that we have to grapple with in Ephesians 1 for example it, it talks about believers um, as having been chosen predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will um, in John 15 uh, Jesus talks about a believers again at, at having been chosen or appointed um, uh, Romans 9 talks about God's purpose in election. So 
we've got these passages, and, and really the question is, what do they mean? And that that's where we get into the sort of debate. And the do- doctrine of election is defined differently by different theologians, but one way of understanding it is that we're all fallen and sinful, and as a result, we're all subject to God's judgment. And on our own, we're unable to do anything about that fact. However, God, before the foundation of the world, decided to save specific people from that judgment by decisively working in them in such a way that they would put their faith in Christ. Now, that's controversial for uh, a number of reasons, but probably the biggest has to do with the fact that we know not everyone comes to faith in Christ. And that raises the question, if God loves everyone, though, why didn't he save everyone? Um, It feels unfair that God would choose to save some and not others. And that feeling of unfairness is heightened when we ask, why did God choose to save me rather than my neighbor? Um, And in Ephesians, Paul Paul says that God's choice is made on the basis of his pleasure and will. And to to many, that, that sounds like God's choice in the matter is arbitrary. So, that's kind of what um, sort of churns up the debate. Uh, Is that really what the Bible says? Uh, Is God really arbitrary? Is he being unfair? Um, And, you know, however, you know, wherever we come down on the debate, you know, how do we explain that some people just, in fact, do not come to faith and therefore are not saved? Yeah, another passage that it often comes up in this discussion comes out of Second uh, Peter 3, where the Apostle Peter talks about how God does not want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so once again, that raises the question of, okay, if, if that's true, you know, if, if election is true, how could that possibly be true? And you know, how do those two things work together? And um, Again, the, all those questions that you're, that you're raising are, are good questions, and I, I think it's okay to ask them. Um, I think what we then need to do, I think what we have to be have to be careful of is, as we've talked about before with uh, the conversation on Scripture, is coming to Scripture with a preconceived notion of this is what's true, reading Scripture, disagreeing with it, and saying. I'm true, there's not, or I'm correct, there's not a doubt in my mind. And I think we just have to be careful not to put those kinds of boundaries on Scripture that aren't necessarily there. Now, that said, we are to be great stewards of the Word. We are to study well. There are people uh, much, much smarter and, and, and wiser and, and uh, more scholarly than Phil and I and, and, and others that have done that kind of work that help us to interpret scripture appropriately. Um, but again, this is one of those topics that is incredibly challenging to do. And I, and just as you were saying, Phil, I mean, I absolutely admit that as well, that even though I have some ideas of what I think scripture says about this, I'm, there's constantly other questions that, that still say, but is that, is that really the case? Like, am I actually sure that that's what the Bible says? One of the things that's helped me is to, to wrestle with the idea that 
God is so much bigger than we are. There's the famous passage in Isaiah 55 that talks about his ways are not his ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, that his ways and thoughts are so much bigger than ours, so much higher uh, than ours. And when we discussed the existence of evil in the world, the existence of sin, we talked about a similar question. Uh, that if God is sovereign over everything, including evil, and he allows evil to happen, doesn't that then make him responsible for that evil? And we kind of landed on the conclusion, well, well, not exactly, right? That, that God's justice is such that he can choose to be decisive over all evil, uh, allow certain things to happen without actually becoming evil himself. And I think Again, I'm, I'm cautious here because I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert, but what has sort of made sense in my mind from an idea of if God is big enough to be able to do that, then I would be willing to guess that it's possible that in the same way God can choose, he can predestine, he can elect certain people according to his sovereignty, according to his perfect wisdom, without actually violating his justice. And again, that goes back to our conversation with God that God's attributes are not in conflict with one another. Um, and we, you know, we discussed that his wrath isn't in conflict with his love as if he's constantly in this tension as he sees a sinful people, uh, you and I, you know, before him and saying, well, on one hand, they deserve hell. And on the other hand, well, I want them to be saved. There's not this constant tension as we might experience that. Um, but again, it, it just it goes to show, again, the depth of just how little we understand the ways in which God works. Right. And, you know, as I, as I think about that, one of the things that come, comes to mind for me is that God often works um, in counterintuitive ways um, and... and ends up with results that we we wouldn't have expected. And he's able to do that because he's able to assess an infinite number of factors and determine what the best decision is in every instance. And because we can't do that, we often don't see how something is going to work out to be the best thing. But then once we get there, we say, oh, um, yeah, now I get it. And, and I think that's helpful to keep in mind as, as we're, whether it's election, the problem of evil, that, that we keep that in mind. We're, however we, you know, resolve the issue, it, we, we need to remember that God does know everything and does know <laughs> what is the best thing. And it, in the di- digging deeper section of the devotional, I, I bring out, out the fact that it, something that we talked about back when we were discussing God's providence, that God's decision to permit sin to enter the world had a result that we wouldn't have initially anticipated. It allowed him to highlight his love for us through Christ's death on the cross. That wouldn't have been necessary or possible if sin had never come into existence. There would have been no need for Christ to pay the penalty for our sin if there were no sin. So although it seems counterintuitive counterintuitive to us, our love for God is stronger in a world with sin because it allows us to see God's love more clearly. And I bring that up because it's a reminder that 
again, God's plan often is brings about results that we wouldn't have predicted because we can't see how everything plays out. Um, and it's something similar, you know, I think is going on with the doctrine of election. We, we can affirm that God does not want anyone to perish, but for some reason doesn't prevent that from happening in certain instances. Um, and we don't exactly know why that is or how that is. Um, but we know that he is able to work things in such a way to bring up about results that achieve the best possible result, even though we can't see it. So with a topic like this, that of course brings with it such tough questions, how can we appropriately and wisely go to the Bible to actually learn what it has to say about election? Well, I think as, as we've hinted at already, I mean, I think it begins with re- remembering that we have finite minds that aren't capable of understanding everything, and that ought to give us a healthy dose of humility um, when it comes to our ability to sort through things like the doctrine of election, because, um, you know, we have finite minds, as I said, and it, it's hard enough to take these biblical passages that on the surface seem hard to put together, like God doesn't want anyone to perish, but yet we read about um, some being predestined for salvation. How do we put those together? Um, That's hard enough for us. Uh, It's even more difficult for us as we start to tease out in real life what that means and to grapple with that feeling of unfairness and, and, and to ask those practical questions. That's even even more difficult. And so I think we have to have the humility to say that um, I'm going to have to set aside my preconceptions and what does the Bible say, uh, pray for God's help and understanding. And then I think wherever we land, I think to some extent we have to acknowledge that, you know, maybe we don't know it all. And so um, um, being patient with people who take a different view. Yeah, right. And and this is just something that's, again, so much easier to talk about than to actually put into practice and, and implement in our lives. Um, but exactly as, you know, you were saying, right, our human minds just can't comprehend in full the works of God. And so, right, there, there does need to be this element of humility where we come to Scripture, lay those things down, and accept the fact that sometimes we aren't going to understand. Um, and again, it's not wrong to ask questions. I, I think that's, that's good. Uh, and I think it's good to ask those questions and to seek a deeper understanding and to, uh, to, to think deeply about what does the Bible say and what does this mean about who God is and who I am and, and all of those things. But again, it has to be done kind of in that, uh, with that sort of humility that says I'm willing to be wrong. Um, I'm willing to have my, you know, preconceived notion be proved incorrect. Um, and maybe affirmed, 
right? And, and, and I think we just have to have that humility that kind of says, okay, maybe there are alternate ways of thinking about this from what I've known, you know, for my life for the, from the, it's different from the way that I've always thought about it. Yeah. Cause I, I, it, it would be difficult for us to not come to this topic, especially with, without some sort of ideas about it. Um, and often we come, you know, ideas that we feel strongly about. And I, I think that's where we have to be willing to lay those down and say, what does the Bible say to the best of my understanding? And, and I think something else that, that um, can be helpful is to think through what the alternative views are. Because I think when we do that, we realize that really, no matter what view we adopt on this topic, we're still going to be left with difficult um, tensions that we're not going to be able to resolve all of that feeling of um, that sense of wishing that (laughs) um, everybody was saved. We're we're still going to be left with this tension, this feeling of unfairness. So, so for example, um, as you think about how one alternate way of thinking about it, other than, you know, God, specifically working in certain people to lead them to faith. Um, Some argue that what those passages are talking about, uh, that talk about predestination or God's choosing or appointing someone, is that in the beginning, God looked into the future and saw who would have faith and who wouldn't, and he chose those, it chose to save those who would have faith. And on the surface, that seems to resolve the tension because although God is making a choice, ultimately it's dependent on our choice to have faith. Now, I think the problem there is that if you accept that the Bible teaches that as a result of the fall, we have all have a sinful nature, it's really hard to explain how anyone comes to faith in Christ without God doing something to make that happen. Um, because of our sinfulness, we don't naturally want to turn to God. That's why Paul in Romans, uh, for example, says that no one seeks God. If that's true, how can anyone come to faith unless God does something within us first to make us want to do that? Um, so if, if that's true, if if in the beginning God looked into the future uh, wanting to see somebody who on their own had come to faith, he wouldn't see anybody. We need him to work inside us to cause us to want to turn to him. And so I think that means that foreseeing faith can't really explain who comes, who God chooses to save and who he doesn't. Um, you know, and another alternative, you know, some who acknowledge uh, just how big an impact our sinful nature has on us and our inability to come to faith. Some of those theologians who are nevertheless uncomfortable saying that election comes down to God's sovereign choice, they argue that God works in everyone to reverse the effects of the fall. Um, And God then works to persuade us to put our faith in Christ, and we're able to respond to that because we are now free to make that choice because our sin nature no longer prevents us. So if we don't turn to Christ, then that's on us. And again, this is an alternative that on the surface is appealing, but it, it still doesn't leave us 
without any questions. Because when we, if we think about uh, our neighbor who may die without having come to faith, we're still left with the question, well, why didn't God do more to persuade them? If, that, if that's what it comes down to, if we're all free to make that choice, and God works to, to sort of woo us, to, to bring us to faith, couldn't he have done more in our neighbor's case? So I, I point those out. I, I'm tipping my hand in terms of probably what I think on the issue, but I bring it, I bring it out to say that wherever we land on it, we're still left with some difficult questions to ask. And, and ultimately, that's because the Bible does make clear that not everyone is saved. And I think because of that, um, there are really no easy answers when it comes to the doctrine of election. So I think that can be helpful if we realize that, that we're not going to settle on something that eliminates all our questions that can open us up to, uh, to what the Bible is saying, because we realize that um, there, there's not going to be this easy answer. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's an incredibly, incredibly complex topic. And, and again, the I found that the more I study it, the more questions that I have. Uh, so you, just, you, you start to just scratch off one layer and then go, oh, but wait. You know, and again, kind of what we were fleshing out there with some of those alternatives of sometimes you, you come in with that idea that says, well, maybe it's this and then, okay, that makes sense. It makes sense. And then, uh, well, okay, but what about that question then? And then that leads you, you know, kind of in a different, you know, path. And, and so it's it just, again, there's, there's so much there. And, and as you're listening to this, you know, you might be thinking, how in the world is this good news? Uh, how can election possibly be good if, it, if there's all this confusion, uh, you know, potential for hurt and pain. Uh, how in the world is election good news? Yeah, so it's it's good news because it affirms that our salvation isn't dependent on our strength. So if, if we acknowledge that God has chosen to save us, uh, he's the one that's going to see it through. So if we think about it for a moment— uh, we know that we're saved by faith and not by works. But there are a whole host of forces arrayed against us, tempting us to give up our faith. In the face of ridicule and persecution and the pleasures that the world offers, could we ever be certain that we wouldn't turn away from God? Left to ourselves, we would have no assurance that, that we wouldn't do just that. But fortunately, we don't have to rely on ourselves. We can be confident of our salvation because we can be confident in the one who chose us. Yeah, election in that way is a demonstration of the grace of God that, again, no one God chooses is chosen because of anything that they have done or will do. Again, we're not saved by works, but by grace through faith that uh, God's election is a demonstration of his grace and mercy for us. And again, that is good news. The assurance piece that you're talking about, that is uh, deeply meaningful and impactful and and, and uh, provides us with hope amidst suffering um, because it is outside ourselves that, that salvation is dependent upon God. And, and, and this is just one of the elements where we see God's election and God's providence actually working together that you know, in some ways, God's election is a means of his 
providence. And, and what I mean by that is that God's choosing is one avenue by which he sees to it that his purposes are accomplished, that again, in his sovereignty, he is decisive over that, as we've discussed, that again, if he desires for all to be saved, if, if you know, he desires to restore relationship with his creation, with his children, that him choosing us then is a means by which he accomplishes that purpose. And, and of course, God's providence is much more per- pervasive uh, than just in salvation, as we've been discussing in the first half of the podcast. Uh, but again, in God's purpose to restore his people back to himself, election is one means by which he accomplishes that. Yeah. It, again, as you said, providence is that broader area that says that God works in all the details of all of our lives and all of human history. And then, but one specific way that he works is to work in our lives, to, to lead us to faith and, uh, and then to continue to work, to ensure that we persevere and remain faithful to him. And, 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 and that's again, one aspect of, of how he's working out all of human history and all of his plans. Well, another question that uh, you might have as you're listening, as you continue to kind of ponder what we're discussing, you might ask, if election is real, why does mission work still exist? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, And we know that in general, God works through a variety of means to bring about his purposes, and it's no different with election. So as Christians, we are called to share the gospel, and that is an important part of how God has chosen to bring people to faith. But even there, it's not something that's entirely dependent upon us. Um, God is working to make our efforts successful. When somebody comes to faith in response to our sharing the gospel with them, the Holy Spirit has already been at work in that person to soften their heart and make them receptive so that they they would respond. Yeah, I think sometimes when we when we think about this, we would be we would be prone to believe that the doctrine of election actually works to create a lack of motivation for missions. But I really don't think that that is the case. And I think one of the things that you know, as as you said, we're we're called and commanded to share faith. So I think. We need to take that seriously if we're looking to live faithful, obedient lives to Christ, that uh, we we take those opportunities to to make disciples of all nations, uh, you know, to the ends of the earth. Um, but again, as we have, have touched on, we don't know so much about the Lord's plans, right? We don't know the ins and outs of how everything works. Well, one of those pieces is that we don't, know who is going to be saved and who isn't right we don't have access to that knowledge um and i i believe it was david platt that i heard this from when when he was answering this question um and he talked about how our evangelism ought to be motivated by a love for others and that's what gets us to go and share our faith um, that 
the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart has transformed us, has sanctified us uh, to be like Christ in such a way that our heart, just as we talked about how his is, is set forth in throbbing compassion for his people, that so it would be with us, that we don't need to know, you know, is this person going to be saved in order for me to uh, you know, then decide, okay, I'm going to share my faith because I understand that they're going to be saved, right? We're doing that because we understand that Christ has called us to and that that is how we are to to live on mission in this world. And so it's a love for others that motivates us that says, I, I can't help but share this message with other people. Um, and as you said, it, that's where our responsibility stops. Right. That again, it is the Lord who saves, not us. We can, uh, I can say the gospel. Uh, yeah, I can tell someone the gospel in two minutes in a beautiful, eloquent way that is no more persuasive uh, apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, it is. It is only in combination uh, with God at work, as you said, that that others are saved. But I think, I hope that kind of helps to answer that question of it, it almost kind of flips the question of not, not why do missions then exist, but really what ought to be the motivation of missions. And I think when the motivation then is to love others as Christ has first loved us, I think we understand that regardless of what uh, degree of election is at work in the world, you know, under God's uh, purposes, that motivation still remains true or still remains relevant. Um, and that again, sharing our faith is never not going to be relevant up until Christ returns, um, that that will still be kind of the, the, you know, mission command, so to speak. Right. Because nowhere are we given the command to sort out who's the elect and who's not and share like the gospel with, you know, those we've determined are somehow, you know, in the right camp. Um, and, but as you say, I mean, I, I think it, it does flip it because if we think about what ought to be the result of our relationship with Christ, part of that, sort of the overflow of our heart, sort of naturally wants us to talk about him. Um, and that desire isn't, only motivated for the results, if that's if that makes sense. Um, even if we knew the results would be um, such that somebody isn't going to respond and, and put their faith in him, I, I still think naturally we ought to want to talk about him, to share him, to, to share the 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 beauty that we see in him, and um, and so I, I I think you're right that when you think about it in those terms then sort of the response is secondary and it's easier to leave up to God. It's just, you know, we just share the out, the overflowing of our heart um, with, with others. And um, again, obviously we do want it to be effective, but it's easy. I think you're right that it's easier to leave that up to God when we see it as not being our primary purpose, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. And I think, again, that's that's a challenging thing. And, and we're not going to be, uh, again, we're not going to be perfect at that. 
Um, that's something, I mean, again, I, I become lackadaisical, you know, lackadaisical in, in, in my own, you know, thinking of living on mission at times. It, and you, we've talked about this before with prayer as well, right? If God is sovereign, why do we pray? Because God already knows what's going to happen. And so are we twisting God's arm? And, you know, we talked about that. That's not, that's not the case. And I think, again, it's just a, it's a, it's an exercise of faith to keep coming back to, again, keep coming back to obviously the commands of our Lord to, to go and be his witnesses. Um, and again, to leave, as you were saying, some of those secondary things up to him. Well, we'll uh, pause the discussion here. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and wisdom, especially in, in navigating um, what, of course, is a difficult topic. And um, again, we've we've invited this before, but if you have questions um, about this topic, we would love to chat more with you. Um, again, we don't pretend to have all of the answers, um, but we'd love to just help you process through or share more of our experience um, of just our own process in, in looking into this topic, as well as others that we've discussed on the podcast as well. Well, next week, we will be wrapping up our discussion on God's providence by talking about the nation of Israel awaiting the first coming of Christ. Then, in the devotional, we will continue discussing salvation by talking about turning to Christ in faith, the process of conversion. So please join us next week for that discussion. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Park City Podcast. We hope this resource helps you to see and savor God's goodness, beauty, and grace in your life. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.parkcitychurch.net. Once again, thanks for listening.